Wednesday evening, Rob, over to you. Oh, it's me. Sorry, folks. That's, that's good. All yeah. good? Sorry, folks. Uh, thank, you. thank you, June. I think she's pretty much covered everything. There's not much <laughs> for me to say now, but um, thank you for um, making me so welcome tonight. I'll just tell you a little bit about myself as, she, uh, as she's pointed out a few things there. I recently retired a couple of years ago. I turned 73 this year, so it's been a long voyage and I've had pretty much enough of it all, so uh, I was glad to walk away from it. I did go to sea when I was 15 and um, I, uh, on, a, on a cargo ship and then within the first year I turned 16 and I was able to sign indentures as an apprentice as a deck cadet at uh, four, I got, I got four pounds a week which doubled very quickly because I got eight dollars because decimal currency kicked in so it was the same amount but it seemed a little bit more. So uh, off I went on a cargo ship, pretty much the lowest form of marine growth on the ship and um, not treated very well. And while I was standing down on deck in my scruffy work clothes, I looked up and there was the captain taking his morning walk on the boat deck in his immaculate uniform with his brass buttons gleaming and all the, all the, all the paraphernalia. And I looked up and I thought, hmm, there's only one job to have around here and that's it. How do I get from here to there in the quickest possible time? And uh, so I, I set off on the journey and um, did my time on the cargo ships and eventually got to the stage that I could attend a navigation school to become an officer, become a second mate. The best opportunity was in New Zealand, so I had to get there. I didn't have any money, I was buying all that. So I got a, I got a job on a, on a New Zealand cargo ship from uh, North Wharf just to get myself across to uh, Wellington. It was probably without doubt one of the worst ships I've ever been on and everybody was drunk, it was, uh, it was quite spectacular. And the captain led by example, he was permanently pickled the whole time. And I'd never actually seen anything quite like this. The, com the company I was with were pretty, pretty fastidious, and, but this was a total disaster. So we wobbled off to New Zealand and uh, I had a pretty good idea where we were because I'd been trained fairly well. The captain certainly didn't. And I can remember up in the morning, the, the chief cook came up and him and the captain had a big screaming, screaming session on the bridge wing deciding which part of the New Zealand coast they were looking at. So apparently the cook had a few skills that the captain didn't. We got to the wharf, everybody ran away. I was left on the ship and uh, there wasn't much point me staying around there. The captain brushed past me. He was on the way down the gangway with a very rusty push bike and still pickled. He was trying to put those clips on his pants and he kept falling over, but he disappeared. So there wasn't much point sticking around there. So I went too. I got to the navigation school, which turned out to be pretty good. I needed the help. I hadn't really um, applied myself to this and also needed a job. I didn't have any money. So I got a job on a salvage ship called the Home Park, which was engaged in salvaging the remains of an inter-island fellow called Wahini. Some of you may remember that was many years ago, hit a rock and roll over and sink. So I had a job on there and um, it wasn't much of a job. I got the, once again, I got the worst job and I, I um, at the risk of, <laughs> of uh, saying the wrong thing, the the explosives that you use underwater are very identical to the explosives that you use ashore, except for one important point, and they're covered in a, in a red wax, a bit like an Edam cheese, if you know what I mean. And so to save money, the company, instead of buying the underwater explosives, they bought the normal ones, and they bought a big box of condoms. And so you used to 
roll the condoms onto the explosives and that way the divers could take them down. So my job was in the explosive magazine with this great big carton of condoms and sawing up these big plugs of plastic explosives. I don't really have to demonstrate what size they were, but um, and putting these condoms on. So the whole ship was awash with wrappers and broken ones. And it was quite spectacular when the New Zealand Women's Weekly reporters came out to visit the ship and they were crunching all this lot underfoot. They were quite horrified until it was explained to what it was. I worked on the ship for some time. I eventually got the sack. And my father was a salvage master at that stage and he sacked me, which is a bit unfortunate. But by that stage I'd had enough, so I went back uh, to the company that I'd been with before and uh, ended up on some beautiful ships. They had a couple of cargo passenger ships. Um, um, cargo passenger ships to us as seafarers are beautiful ships. We don't really enjoy looking at uh, passenger ships like a block of flats. These things were beautiful. That's the first time I came across Reg. We were both officers on this ship, and uh, they were lovely ships. And on the uh, Australia sort of Far East run around Singapore, Hong Kong, around the Japanese coast and back again, it was a pretty good lifestyle. I was a pretty dashing sort of second mate with a good head of hair, and I could dance pretty well. And so I, I really found my, this was my new home. I really enjoyed this. But then, unfortunately, an American gentleman by the name of Malcolm McLean kind of ruined my life for me. Malcolm McLean was a man who invented shipping containers. He was a truck, truck man, thank you, a trucking uh, magnate, and he invented shipping containers, which of course was a far better way to ship cargo. Didn't do me much good because we were quite happy on these cargo ships and they weren't really suitable to carry containers. And the whole industry changed pretty much overnight. And uh, these ships, as beautiful as they were, they were no longer cost efficient. They couldn't carry cargo. They needed to carry it as well as the passengers. So that was the end of that. We got to Hong Kong, all the passengers got off. They got rid of the pianos and a few niceties and then a run crew. We took it up to uh, Taiwan and uh, ran up the beach, ran up the beach and um, it was due to be scrapped. When we were leaving the ship, some people came through and set these incendiary devices through the ship. The tables were still set for a meal. The cabins still had bunks and mattresses and linen. And as we got in the bus and went up the hill, you could see the fire starting off. So they burned the ship for a month to burn everything out of it just because they wanted the steel. So one minute was a beautiful ship with teak railing and brass cappings and everything you could think of, a very handsome ship. The next minute was just a, just a piece of junk ready to be scrapped. I went back to the company and at that stage they then got themselves two container ships, uh, very fast ones, sleek ones, beautiful looking ships. And I was uh, second mate and mate on those for a while on the Australia Japan run. But the fun had gone out of it. Um, whereas before we used to go to a port and be there for a week, we'd hit the Japanese coast, we'd do six ports in five days and they're off again. So there wasn't much opportunity to do the things we did best, which was to race up the road and, and have a bit of fun. So I could see the writing on the wall. This was just not going to be a good lifestyle for me. It wasn't really going to help me very much. At that stage, I'd heard about the offshore oil industry. A few people were gravitating into that. It was a bit rough and ready, but the, the pay rates were quite exotic compared to what we got. So I thought that's, I discovered that money was quite a valuable thing to have. You could have a good time with money, but you could have an even better time with a lot of money. So it was kind of appealing to me at the time. So I ended up on an anchor handler, um, like the models we have next door, in Bass Strait. 
Now, this was quite a change from a passage issue, but I can tell you where I was running around with a cummerbund and a bow tie, all of a sudden ended up on the, on the deck of a anchor in the middle of a bass straight go with water washing up the deck and wires twanging around and, and all sorts of hazardous hard work. Um, and also I discovered that I didn't feel very well. I'd never really been seasick, but believe me, on some of these smaller ships in the middle of a bass straight go, they're jumping around and I wasn't feeling too good. And so I stuck it out for the first uh, month and then headed home. And uh, I wasn't really totally convinced that it was a job for me, but then um, I discovered how much money they paid in my bank account. I thought, oh, well, I might just go back for another week and see what happens. And then 20 years later on and off, I was still there. So it was a pretty, pretty good job. Made some good friends. Once again, Reg popped up there too. So we sort of, our paths crossed many, many times. I stuck it out for a long time and it was a great job and very, very interesting. And, um, doing a lot of uh, towage and work with the worries. Um, I got to the stage where it was a good opportunity to perhaps think about going ashore. So I went in the office and become a marine manager. I didn't really like that. It was a bit hard for me. I had a desk with uh, a carpet square and two pot plants, which apparently upset a few people who'd been there longer than me. And they were a bit upset that I had two pot plants and not one like them. And I couldn't quite get my head around the office politics, but I. I sold it on for a while and then Reg appeared in my life again. He'd gone ashore and, um, and then started another shipping company which were running ships across Bass Strait and he was looking for some drivers. So I thought that's a good opportunity. I'll, I'll jump out of this office job and jump into that. But he, um, he couldn't give me a captain's job straight away. I more or less had to start at the bottom. And I can remember standing on this rugby, rugby ship in Victoria Dock with the rain coming down, watching these semi-trailers come on board. And in the distance, I could see the lights on in my office in, in Collins Street. And I thought, oh, I've made a bad mistake here. This is not really going quite so good. But Reg was true to his word, and we, we got there, and we got a couple of nice new ships, a nice Swedish one, which is a beautiful ship. And uh, it was great to be part of that, and we, we made a pretty good job of it. Um, at the same time, Reg was moving ahead and started to take over another uh, offshore shipping company, pretty much the opposition to the one I just left. And he was after a marine manager for a while to fill in, so I went and worked for Reg. Probably the worst mistake I ever made. We were good friends, but he was a shocking person to work for. And, um, and I stuck there for a while, but uh, that was long enough. And uh, we parted best of friends. But um, at that stage, I thought I would like to have a crack at piloting. So I looked at, uh, I had the right credentials to get into Port Phillip Sea Pilots. I kind of went through the process, but I'd had enough of Bass Strait banging around in the rough weather of the freezing gold and everything else. And there was an opportunity to uh, become a Torres Strait and Barrier Reef marine pilot. Sitting under a palm tree in Cairns looked a bit better than banging around Bass Strait. So um, that got the vote. Next thing I was up in Cairns and I got all the licenses as a, as a Queensland Coast Torres Strait pilot, holding the, all sorts of ships up and down the reef. You stuck on them for three days. You could navigate them up through all the passages and back again. Once again, my timing was perfect, perfectly wrong. The pilots who had been there operating for 150 years decided to have a big dispute amongst themselves, and the whole thing kind of folded up in a big heap and turned into two different companies that hated the sight of each other. It sort of put friends against lifelong friends, and the only way they could compete was to reduce the pilotage fee. So it went down and down and down. It was a bad mistake. I was, I was uh, once again in the lurch. 
and I was prepared to leave and go back to driving ships again somewhere else. But another two pilots, uh, we got together and we started our own pilotage company, piloting the big uh, bulk carriers out through one particular passage in the reef called Hydrographer's Passage. We more or less took on the existing might of uh, big pilotage companies. We were very much the mouse of Rod, and we, um, but we did pretty well. We, we, we started off uh, with, good, with all the goods. Um, I forgot to mention that in this particular pilotage, all the pilot transfers are done by helicopter. So we'd approach the existing helicopter operators and they agreed they would help us out. But when the time came to help us, they were told that they were no longer allowed to help us. We kind of suspected this might happen, so we had to buy our own helicopter. This was not an easy thing. So the three of us were in similar circumstances. We all had to increase the mortgages on our house and find the money and, <laughs> and buy a helicopter. And it had to be a specific helicopter with a Bell 206, but a maritime helicopter and there weren't any in Australia except for one. It was hanging up in the powerhouse museum in Sydney. It was the one Dick Smith flew around the world and, and it was up there. And so we I ended some negotiations with see if we could buy that one and had all the right airframe numbers that we'd substituted with another one which we had painted the same colours. We were going pretty good and then once again it got it got shut down. Um, we we found out later our opposition found it was a weak spot with us so they so we're stuck we eventually bought a helicopter i've got to keep checking the time we bought a helicopter in sweden sight unseen we got an engineer to check it out and uh, it was all right and um but we couldn't afford to go and see it so it was put in a container and sent out to where we were in Mackay. and um i think you'd probably be aware that when you look at helicopters they're the most exotic things they're beautiful looking things and they usually have the very flash paint jobs they're usually nice colors or nice designs and patterns and Everything on. They're pretty classy machines. We're the only poo brown helicopter in the world. It was, it was beige and a sort of a poo brown colour. It was the worst looking thing you've ever seen. But we didn't have any money to paint it, so we put a few stickers on it, and, and that was it. That was the best we could do. Of course, we needed a helicopter pilot. We needed a special sort of pilot that could fly all weather, instrument flight, and hard to get one of those in a place like Mackay. Every Friday, we'd go to the Aero Club and they had a chook raffle and there lurched across the bar was this great big guy with big whiskers and someone said, oh, that's Ken, he's a helicopter pilot. Ken wasn't in a really good shape, he, he could barely speak. And so we avoided Ken as best we could. And the weeks, weeks and weeks went by, we still didn't have any luck. And then one of my partners bumped into Ken at the supermarket and said, it's not a bad bloke, he's actually going to come along and have a talk to us. So Ken turned up all freshly, nice fresh shirt and looked pretty sharp and, um, and uh, put his documents on the table. Very, very experienced pilot, perfectly suited to what we needed. I couldn't help myself. I said, Ken, you got a problem with the grog? And he said, no, no, you look quite surprised. I said, what about Fridays at the Aero Club? Oh, yes, he said, that's a, that's a problem. And it turned out it was a kind of a sad, well, it was a very sad story. <clears throat> He had a wife who was struck down with multiple sclerosis and he was a carer. He'd given up flying full time to look after her. And on Fridays, the council would send home help to give him a break. So he'd go and play golf. That was the start of the disaster. And then he'd end up in the Aero Club and finish the job off there. So Fridays wasn't a good day. But he turned out to be a very reliable guy, a very reliable pilot and, and a friend for life. So we were up and running and our uh, business plan kind of clicked into place and we ended up buying another helicopter, a twin engine helicopter, and we, uh, we did pretty well with the, with the business. 
we um, I hit the road and went to all the different shipping companies around Southeast Asia to try to spruik the business to get them to choose us as a pilot. And it did pretty well. I ended up um, in Hyundai's office, beautiful office. And um, I showed them the letter I had. They looked a bit surprised. I eventually found myself way up at the top of the penthouse where the, the main man was, was was in residence up there. He looked quite startled. He, he couldn't quite understand who I was. And it turned out that um, I showed him the letter and he couldn't really remember that. But I got to the, the big man at the top, the very man at the top. He had no idea about ships and pilots, but he was very helpful. And he said, look, I don't even got a clue. But he said, I'll get someone to look after you. And of course, they all fell over themselves to look after me. And we cornered the business, much to our competitors' um, alarm. We did pretty well, but we found an easier way to do it. And in, in Mackay, there was an abundance of mud crabs, those great big horrible looking things with the big nippers. And we found that the Korean ship captains just loved these things. So we had a big plastic bucket in the helicopter and we put the mud crab in that, tied up with that pink string, and we presented to the captain when we went out to join the ship. And uh, they, were, they were over the moon with this, and we got more ships through mud crabs than we ever did flying around Southeast Asia. So one thing led to another, and um, I have to watch the time. I think I'm going to write it. Uh, we, uh, the partnership kind of failed, and uh, that was the end of that. So I decided that uh, it was time for me to move on yet again. And I had a, a license, which you may or may not have heard of. It's called a DP, an unlimited DP license. So DP is dynamic position. These are the ships that self-position themselves in the offshore game. They, they work on computer systems and very sophisticated. So luckily enough, I had this qualification. Reg, once again, helped me. Reg appeared in my life and helped me to, to get through this. I did a few rotten ships for him and he never paid me, which I bring up now and then and he just smiles in his way. It's a little bad luck about that. But anyway, did a lot of ships for him and some in West Africa, some in one in, uh, in Egypt where um, the job fell to bits and ended up arrested, ship arrested and I was interned in a, in a hotel for a month or so. Rich, he did pay me for that job. And uh, so I was virtually back in the same industry that I'd, that I'd left. I, at the same time, I became a harbour master. I, I was harbour master for Gippsland Ports, looked after the waterways from Malakuta right around to, uh, to Westport Bay, including the Gippsland Lakes, a very beautiful waterway. Excuse me. And, um, and I didn't enjoy that. That was the first time I'd ever had to deal with the public, and I'd never really come across them before that much, and uh, discovered that. There's some incredibly rude people out there, and I was that naive. They were rude to me most of the time, and I didn't even understand it. It was only 10 minutes later I realised. So I stuck it out for a while, but it wasn't for me. And once again, back to sea. At that time, I discovered they have a wonderful uh, maritime TAFE college at Lakes Entrance, and uh, I stuck my head in there. And the guy said, I could really use you if you had a teaching qualification, which I did. I had a certificate for because I'd been a check and training pilot on the reef. So I started teaching um, Master Fours at this college, and I've been doing that for 10 years. I've taught over 400 people now uh, through Master Four, and I discovered it was something I enjoyed. I had a skill that they needed. They were quite, they looked at me quite strangely when I stood up in the classroom. You could see the look of horror on their face going, gee, we've got five weeks to listen to this boring old bastard drawing on. But of course, I had all the information that they needed, and within the first week, 
know, they'd all come up and say, you know, you're not such a bad bloke after all. <laughs> and so it was immensely successful. It still is. I still do. COVID sort of killed that a little bit. Um, what else can I say? I think I'm pretty much near the end of my stint here. Um, I wrote a book, uh, for better or for worse. It's a little bit, a little bit rough and ready. So uh, I have to warn you to be careful. The language is atrocious. When Rich read the book, he had some very unkind things to say about it. He said, I've read it. He said, I was there for most of it. He said, I've never seen such a lot of bullshit in my life. <laughs> Which coming from a close friend, I could have done without. I, um, along the way, I become a civil celebrant. One of only three ship captains that's a civil sovereign. There's a misnomer. People think that ship captains can perform marriages. They can't, not, certainly not in Australia. So I did that. I never did it really as a career change. I did it for a bit of fun. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was, uh, that was the end of that. Um, I can't think of anything more I can really tell you. It's been a, been quite a journey through life. As I say, it's, um, 60 odd years since I first went to sea to when I finished a couple of years ago. So to try to compress 60 years into 30 minutes, I'm afraid um, I, mean, I can't do much better than that. I think um, I have the opportunity to, if you have any questions, you can fire at me. Hopefully I can answer them. Is that, is that right? Yep. Anybody like to throw something at me? Yes. Do you mind feedback on land? It's a funny thing. Most most seafarers, <clears throat> excuse me, most seafarers at our level don't really enjoy the sea. I mean, it comes up sometimes because oh, you got the sea in your blood and salt water. We don't really see it that way. It's not really something we have a passion about the job we do. But I couldn't care less if I never saw the sea again. I don't really enjoy that much. You know, you don't really enjoy something that has the capacity to kill you or steal your job. So yeah, I quite enjoy being ashore. I live in Gippsland, have a small hobby farm. I can't see the sea at all, and I'm blissfully happy. I never want to see it. And there is a funny twist to it. I've cited a while long, but I lived on a road called Trevor Road, and I found out, I've been there for 40 years, and I only found out just recently that it was, Trevor Road was named after Captain Trevor, a sailing ship captain, who did exactly the same thing, walked into the bush and, and uh, to get away from the sea. So it's quite a funny twist. So I enjoy being ashore. Yeah, I love it. Anything else? We all get involved with those, and Reg can expand on this. But my capacity is that they vary. In, in, in Southeast Asia, they're a different sort of pirate to what you'll find in West Africa, as you'll find out shortly. Yes, you do come across them, but they're really, you've got to be very careful when you talk about it because the definition of a pirate is a stateless person, someone who doesn't really belong to a country. You know, so pirates weren't necessarily flying a flag in a country. These people, especially through Southeast Asia, whether they're Indonesians or anywhere else up that way, they're actually citizens of a country. So they're really better branded as just thieves and rogues and bandits. They, they, uh, we don't really like putting the term pirate. I think it's a bit too flash for them. But yes, you have to be very careful, especially on ships like we work on that are quite close to the water. I mean, they can get on board pretty, pretty easy. Your ship and your because most merchant ships don't carry guns. You, you do, there are occasions where you can, you can hire a gunman to do that. But generally speaking, cargo uh, commercial ships don't carry guns because they're just uh, such a huge problem when you get to a port, things like that. So no, no, we don't, uh, we don't do that. Yep. 
Run, run over them. That's what I did. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, we we, 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 we do things. If uh, depending on the ship, so the, the doors at a certain level will be locked. Sometimes we even weld them shut. So there's only one way you can get in and out of the ship. They'll be through the top. So they can roam around, do whatever they like. But there's not much they can really take on uh, on a ship. So there's certain things you do, yes. And some ships, uh, they put razor wire and things like that around. So through Southeast Asia, when I was a pilot, I kept coming across ships coming in that had dogs, very, very nasty dogs would roam around the ship because a lot of Asians are very scared of dogs. So they would, um, these big wolfhound things would roam around all night. If anyone stuck their head over the rail, they were quite terrified to, to be even. So yeah, there's certain things. I'm sure Reggie's going to explain a bit of that later on. I'm sorry. Three of the ships carry people on board. Yes, they do. Yeah. They um, they're not cheap, and they're not, and there's there's a problem with them. I mean, you got to get them on board. You got to get the get the guns and stuff on board, and then do something with them. So yes, they do. Mainly, uh, ex uh, Russian servicemen or a lot of Ukrainians at the time. So they do have them, um, and they are a deterrent. But some of the ships, uh, particularly running out of the new yards in India, the 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 pirates are networked pretty well. They get to know which ships the people provide the information from. I imagine they pick up a buck or two, and they'll know which ships have got guards or things on them, or which ships are worthwhile. Um, they know well before the ship ever gets there. You know. I helped a guy from Yeah. Yes. Look, there are a few. Not carry guns, so there were things like water. Yeah. Oh yeah, and um, they even use acoustic generators. There's an acoustic generator that makes a lot of noise. They use it. Yeah. Yes. No. Exactly right. There's a few different ways. The passenger ships use a lot of acoustic generators. We used to say it was a big. I had um, a sound generator that apparently. Play things like Barry Manilow's greatest hits or something like that. It's probably scary. So yeah, you're exactly right. No, you're exactly right. There are deterrents, but it depends on which part of the world you're operating and what will work and what won't. You know. Well, that blue light, yeah. That's good. All right. Any more? No. Yes, ma'am. What would your advice be to someone entering the same career path as you entered the so was it the 14th? Yes, now it's a little bit more difficult. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah no, he's a little young. But as you know, uh, you watch this in action, uh, all of us that have been here for the week, we run a schools program, which is immensely successful. We, we help people. We go to the schools, provide the information for year 12 students, different career paths through the maritime industry, and depending on what they might want to do, it might not necessarily be what I do standing on the bridge of a ship or what Reg has done. It could be anything at all, computer programming or design work. There's a lot of lot of opportunities in the maritime industry apart from standing on the bridge of a ship. So um, we we can give, give you another run through that tomorrow sometime. But there is a lot of stuff. Like yeah, we can we can help you with that. There's a lot of information. Offshore specialist ships. We have a schools program which is immensely successful. Goes to all the different schools. So. Um, there are opportunities there, yeah. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Which was the best ship you drove and which was the worst? Ah. Well, I really enjoyed the offshore ships. There was a couple that I really liked. 
Um, offshore ships now are very upmarket, very expensive, and well fitted out, all the latest gear, all the latest technology, wonderful, wonderful things. I really enjoy nearly everyone I go on, you know, they, 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 they reach the end of their life very quickly, so they're constantly being replaced. So you, if you're fortunate enough, you always keep on a new one. The worst one, well, I delivered a couple of trawlers for a guy once from Singapore to Australia. They were pretty ropey. Yeah, they, they were too good. A lot of cockroaches and things. So I was well prepared just to take one of those, um, those sleeping bag riders made out of um, silk. So I used to buckle yourself in that and do it up do it up the top so the cockroaches can't get through. Cockroaches, they'll eat the skin off the bottom of your feet while you're asleep. So when you jump out, you know, you can say, yeah, there's a lot of horrible things around out there. But good and bad, yeah, take a leave it. No choice. Another nice ship I drove, I drove a paddle steamer on the Murray River. Um, the guy rang me up and said, you ever driven one? I said, yeah, of course I have. I've never seen one in my life. <laughs> and I, I drove it, it was quite a bit of fun. But the best part of that was they gave me the best uniform I've ever had in my life. I, 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 we don't really wear many uniforms in, in commercial ships, you know. But this thing they gave me, this uniform, was like Idi Amin. I had stripes and ribbons and zinc. It was fantastic, yeah. It was a, <laughs> not much of a job, but a nice uniform. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Yes? I'm just curious about the navigational technology. It's so high-tech now. How often does that fail? Where you then have to revert ah. back to your, your old skin. Well, that's a that's How a reliable is it really a Yeah, no, it's a, it, look, I come from a generation where we did everything with a sextant and a chronometer and all that, so I can revert back to that pretty quickly. Then GPS came along. Now I don't know if you're aware, but there was twenty-two satellites in the GPS system and some of them were able to be uh, brought in to replace ones that failed. And they've since used all those up. And the only way they could put them up was in, when they used the space shuttle. That was one of the jobs of the space shuttle. Of course, they're in museums now, they don't go. So now the system is starting to collapse a bit. There's a Russian one called G GDSS, that, that's a different one. So the system will start to slowly deteriorate and um, the, the uh, accuracy of it will fail. That much so that this year, the American Navy have uh, reintroduced Celestial navigation with the sex running to all their navigating officers. So I reckon there's a message there. That, yeah, but there are other systems, uh, navigation systems. Yeah, so. But when you're at the, does it ever happen when you're at the, like coming through Portsmouth Bay hands? Yeah, what, what happens? No, even worse than that. The thing, the whole the GPS system is a American one, and that's run by uh, US Marine Corps provided personnel that operate it. And when they have a big skirmish, like I know it's a fair while, but when they have the Desert Storm skirmish, the big the big American staff sergeant will pull a switch and turn it all off for a while just to demonstrate that the whole world actually controls it. So if you have a track plotter on the ship, you'll see it'll just jump off and go nowhere and then it'll come back on. So they very much control it and they can turn it on and off. And it does diminish, it does it does have its bad spots as well, you know. So you've got to treat it very carefully. If you we would never really rely on it as a 100%. We always have other systems in place, you know, to, to compensate. You've got to be careful with it, yeah. Celestial navigation and stuff yeah. like that. Master Ford, they don't really require it, but they, we, we, do, we do a lot of things like they have to be able to uh, understand how they can correct a compass error by looking at the sun, the stars, the moon. So we. We get involved with it that way. So they don't have an interpreter. 
Not at Master 4, no. No. Yeah, a lot of ships, yeah. If you, you, there's electronic charting systems is what you're talking about. Unless it's, if it's not a totally approved electronic charting system, you have to have a full portfolio of paper charts, yeah. It's very strict and it's very, very hard to comply with just full electronic charts, no? Yeah. You're right on it. Yeah, I can see you'd be reading up on this. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No, no, the electronic charting systems are very common, but usually you find that there will be a, a backup system in place as well, you know. I mean, if you have a fire on the bridge of a ship, which is not unheard of, I can assure you of that, you can take out all the fancy equipment in, in, in 15 minutes, you know, nothing will work. Yeah. Yes? Uh, we're probably all familiar with the bridge that takes the hydrant. Is there other pieces of water in the world that you would compare that as a pilot? The rip is quite unique. I was, as I said before, I was an exam master. I used to take my own ship in there. I did all the same exams as a pilot. So, uh, yeah, it is quite a treacherous place. Um, there are you know, lots of places in the world where there's tidal streams like this and, and, and rapid water flows, you know, I, I can't, I can think of a few, but I mean, they all have their own characteristics and, and difficulties. One, one that caught me out in a big way, where I was delivering a ship for Red um, and took it down the, uh, down the east coast of Africa and where the Agulhas currents meets the pressure system there, that it generates big holes in the ocean. And you actually, you can fall head first into a hole. It's quite a quite a horrible experience. And um, yeah, the ship just went down. I was going down a like down a mine shaft for it stopped. So there are lots of peculiar places, lots of places in the world, very peculiar. Now. That that night, there's a picture in there showing the pilot cutter that um, that got uh, swamped and then killed the pilot and the coxswain on board. There's a picture there, just a bow sticking out. Uh, I bought one of our register ships in that very same night. Beautiful ship. The Swedish ship I was talking about, that was a very, very fierce uh, current, uh, a fierce storm. And when we, I brought her in through the heads, it was uh, a very, very treacherous place. The ship wouldn't steer, it just came in on a great big wave and nothing would, would, would bring its head around till the very last moment. And then when we came around the corner, there was a pilot cutter bow sticking out and, and the tragedy unfolded. I might add on that particular ship, I don't know, have good Reg's memories, but we had a lot of trucks collapse on deck with animals carrying livestock in, in the double-decker sort of uh, semi-trailers and they collapsed and all the animals fell in on top of one another all got squashed and it was a hell of a mess and um, as a captain of the ship, as a master I should say, I was lugged off to Melbourne Magistrates Court and and, uh, and they were going to charge me with cruelty to animals under the livestock that I was responsible for, I managed to get out of that but that was a very, very bad storm, very bad night. You know? Pretty bad when it catches the pilots out, isn't it? You know? Yeah. All right. We we had rain weather so bad that you were concerned about the welfare of your ship. No. 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 That would, if it gets to that stage, then you probably shouldn't be there anyway. So yeah, you have to have a lot of faith in the machinery, and if it, if they're good ships and nice ships, then you won't ever have those sort of concerns, you know. <laughs> Same with ship handling. I mean, you know, the ship handling, actually driving a ship is really left to your own devices. And, uh, you know, you make sure you've got it all covered. And um, I can't ever recall being to the stage where I was thinking, you know, this one's going to kill me. <laughs> yes, that's it. All good? Now we're done.
Thank you very much, Reg. That was wonderful. Now we'll have a uh, brief intermission so everybody can either get a cup of coffee, tea, or something else to drink at the bar, and then we'll come back and listen to Rob's talk. Reg's talk, tales and true. Sorry, too many hours around here tonight. <laughs> Thank you.
about myself, <laughs> Robbie's done all that, <laughs> but uh, I'll briefly uh, give you a bit of background, I won't take it long, then we'll really get into, um, I mean I could go for, like Robbie with a lot of history and a lot of things, but um, I thought I'd focus on something that was interesting. I started out um, going to sea as a marine engineer, I did the apprenticeship in Melbourne, um, at a fitting and turning workshop in Richmond uh, on the approved machinery for ships, and I went to RMIT at night school. And my last year, um, uh, fortunately, a British ship came in and uh, one of the engineers got sick and they needed somebody. In desperation, they grabbed me, so off I went. So I started my life in the British Merchant Navy, and then I worked my way through. Um, a number of different companies around the world, up to chief engineer. And then I got into um, the building of ships in Japan and China, and then went into the management side. I got headhunted back to Australia, and that's when we, Robbie and I sort of regrouped again. I set up Bass Strait uh, Shipping for Brambles, which is now Toll Shipping. So um, we came up with, I was uh, the first employee there and came up with a Roro concept uh, with Matthew Roll trailers and uh, ships designed for double stack containers. But I'm not here to talk about that. I'd like to get into um, the main subject, which is um, part of my career. I moved on back into the offshore industry and worked for a company called Tidewater, uh, which was an American company in New Orleans. Most of the industry offshore was controlled by American technology. So working for an American company made a lot of sense. Um, I started out here in Australia in a joint venture with Brambles and Tidewater. Uh, the Americans brought out the Australians and they got me. So I found myself, worked my way up to a senior vice president. I was the only non-American senior executive in the company and 
since I left, there's never been another one, so you can work out that one for yourself. <laughs> um, but um, I eventually found myself based in Aberdeen, Scotland, and I thought that was great. I'm going to be in Scotland, and uh, it's a nice place to be. But they forgot to tell me it came to a place called Africa. Uh, so I was responsible for a number of regions in the world. And at one stage, I managed all of the company's interests except for the Americas. So I had um, about 400 ships under me. Uh, Africa was our biggest area and um, our most challenging area. So what I'm going to talk about is a couple of incidents that occurred there where I very found myself as an ex-marine engineer, uh, as a hostage negotiator. Um, what you've got up on the screen there is, uh, you've heard of a guy called Julian Assange? Uh, yeah, well, one of the things that Julian did with WikiLeaks, as you'll see there, was that they tapped into the US <coughs> government uh, communication system. So as an American company, and on that first ship we had an American national, so I would be sending information to the US Embassy in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria, they would send it back to Washington and WikiLeaks would tap in and post all this stuff. So, that, so that's just one extract of a, a WikiLeaks uh, email from Abuja back to Washington reporting. And I get mentioned in there two or three times, but basically reporting every day I would give them a report of what was happening because it was an American company and one American citizen. Okay. Thank you, Bear, if I take that. Huh? Yep. I need I to press so. it. No, you don't need to. Can you? Yeah. Okay, so um, if we could scroll down there. I know that, that might be a bit small for a few, but anyway, um, we, were, we had a ship there uh, called the Liberty Service. It was one of 40 ships working in Nigeria. Um, we'd never had kidnappings in, in that part of the world before. The Nigerians got the idea from um, Iraq when they were doing kidnappings there. And they come up with the idea of uh, <coughs> kidnapping people and holding them for ransom. Uh, unfortunately, I was in Nigeria just heading back to Scotland that night when this first incident occurred. This ship was working for SNEPCO, which is Shell Nigeria Exploration Production Company. And Shell operated a lot of, it's all down in the Delta region. And we'll get to a couple of, um, maybe if you go to the first slide. Um, unlike Robbie, I like lots of pictures and things. <laughs> That's, that, that's the um, WikiLeaks. We're having a technical hitch, but anyway, I'll start without that. Um, so the ship was the Liberty Service. Um, okay, there's Nigeria. And uh, down the bottom to the right is uh, Cameroon. And uh, I was up in Lagos, which is just further up to your left there. 
Uh, the oil is down in the Delta region, which is all mangrove swamp and uh, pretty harsh terrain. And um, you may recall uh, there was a war of independence between the Biafrans. It was called the Biafran War. Well, this was the area. And uh, they're mainly um, Christians or they, they worship various things. The Muslims are all up in north. Well, after the war, the north took over and controlled the whole thing. So a lot of unrest there. Um, Africa is all about tribalism, so you deal with lots of different tribes. <clears throat> and um, we were working for Shell <coughs> just off the coast there, and the particular ship was uh, providing security for a floating storage facility, which was anchored just offshore. So the oil comes from a series of wellheads which are in the swamp, goes out to the um, FSO, which is a tanker, and then it discharges to other ships. So this ship's role, we had 20 uh, Nigerian naval ratings on board, and they were there with weapons to protect, mainly stop stealing from, from the FSO. When the attack occurred, um, they just basically, the Nigerians threw their weapons down and hid. So that was the end of them. Um, next one. That's pretty much a, another version of the same one, just to show you the two, the two main areas. There's a, the next one that you get, um, I'll paint a picture with some of these, change to the next one. Okay, that'll give you an idea. <laughs> so they've got themselves these high-speed boats. They've got two 50 horsepower outboards on the back. Um, they've got a belt-fed machine gun up forward. And um, when they come at you, they come in from the swamps. And uh, from when you get them on the radar to when they're at the ship, you've got five minutes. <clears throat> and so this had never happened before. So all this happened. I was in the office about to head out to the airport. And um, in this part of Nigeria, there was a little bit of unrest. So I always had security with me when I went around um, but um, we had a call back from Port Harcourt which is <coughs> near where this operation was to say that the ship had called up and uh, said that there's no officers on board so what had happened was that two of these things came out and uh, the first thing they do with the machine gun is they fire up to the ship and take out all the bridge wing glass um, everybody, of course, and then they're straight alongside. The freeboard on the ship, which is from the water level to the deck, is probably less than a metre. So they come on with grappling hooks and they're on the ship. Um, the Nigerian security personnel, they all hid, so we had no security. And they grabbed <coughs> the white men, and I use that reference because that's how they talk to each other and um, took them away in, in one of those boats into the swamp. So I'm sort of sitting there in the office hearing some of this conversation and um, away we went from there. So if we go to the next slide. <clears throat> okay, that's the um, MEND. That's the movement for the... Uh, 
movement for the in, independence of, uh, read it there, emancipation of the Niger Delta. How can I forget it? Um, now, this is basically a, a group of various um, factions that got together and decided oh, we'll call ourselves men because it'll give us a political overtone. Uh, when we went into this group, we found out that there were Nigerian politicians involved in there as well. So they claimed that they were there to represent the interests of the uh, indigenous people in the region that had been badly looked after, that Shell Oil Company had um, taken all the oil revenue and given them nothing in return. <clears throat> uh, that's not quite true. Uh, what the oil companies do is that they pay money to the Nigerian government most of that money goes to Switzerland into bank accounts of um, wealthy politicians and influential people. Regrettably, very little, of, and that's not just Nigeria, all the way up and down the African coast where we were working in the oil fields, the same thing happened. Uh, it's a cultural thing. It'll probably take generations. They've got to identify as a nation first, <coughs> not tribal. And um, anyway, so we were dealing with men. So they've got the guys, and uh, the first thing you've got to do is determine what's called proof of life. You know, you've got to get a hold of them. So we go to the next slide. <clears throat> so communication, what they do is, this is not some of my guys, but this is the sort of thing that I was dealing with. In the background are the people <coughs> holding them hostage. Now, what happens is the guys in the boats come out, they take the <coughs> kidnapped victims, they take him into the swamp, and there was an area like hotel, uh, <clears throat> kidnap hotel. So this group inside in the swamp uh, were paid money to hold the hot, it was like a jail. So various groups were, went out, started kidnapping, bring them in, hold them there, and then you would negotiate with the leader of the various factions to try and get your people back. <clears throat> they would send this sort of stuff off to us to show proof of life. Um, communication was by satellite phone. It was the only way, way you could communicate. One of the good things with the sat phone and the fact that I was working with an American company is that we could get <coughs> the CIA involved and they had a very good network of satellite communication in the country. And we could actually ping the phone <coughs> and determine roughly within one or two kilometers of where they were talking from. Uh, once we knew that, then I would go to the tribes in that region where they were being held captive, <clears throat> work out which tribes they were, and then out of the, I guess, 2,000 Nigerians that we employed, find Nigerians that were from that area, approach the tribal chiefs and say, listen, you've got bad guys in your area, <clears throat> we will give you money. And I did that with the oil companies. The oil companies provide money <laughs> to... Um, various projects in these regions. So we'd say, look, you help us kick these bad guys out. We'll put a, an oil well, a, a water well in or a small road or a school or a hospital in return for that. So <clears throat> poor old guys here, yeah, we, we know they're not going to kill them. They'll only get killed if there's an accident. Uh, but, you know, of course, the people there, the, they're, they're wanting to get out and me working for an American company, US law prohibited us from paying ransom. Uh, 
starting price when the if it was American, it was five million US dollars, and then it went down. It was not if they kidnapped Nigerians, that was nothing. In fact, they yeah, some of the Nigerians on one of the incidents jumped in the boat and the kidnappers threw them back out because the last thing they would, <laughs> nobody would pay money for them, regrettably. So next one. Yeah, I think we've seen that one or similar one to that before. Uh, that's the solar, solar tide too. So that, now that, if you can hopefully, yeah, that was another kidnap incident. But what I wanted to show you here is uh, there was a question about how do we protect the vessel? Well, after the first incident, I guess that's rain, is it? We had to come up with a number of ways of which to, um, we call harden the ship to make it difficult. We know we've got that five minutes from when we know that they're coming at us. And so we came up with a number of uh, piracy prevention measures. Um, Robbie mentioned some of them. We put um, wire around the ship and then we put concertina wire, razor wire on the top. So we've got uh, wire greeting down the side. Uh, you can see it there. You see the cages on the on the starboard side, which is to the closer side to me here. Um, up on the that uh, we would put um, bulletproof uh, screening around all that glass was all shrouded. We would take the um, all of the the doors into the accommodation. The door handles came off and then we barred from inside so you couldn't enter the accommodation from outside into the ship. The only way you could get in was so when you go into the area, you lock up like that. <clears throat> um, we would uh, we've got fire firefighting monitors. Uh, they're uh, what 2,500 uh, gallons per minute. So you've got two of those down the back of the vessel. We would spray those out. And then I'd usually put a few more monitors. So we had a water curtain. So you would try and flood the canoe when he gets alongside. Um, <clears throat> the other, uh, we, inside the ship, we create what's called a, um, a safe haven. And that was usually down in the cement tank area. So inside there, all of the crew would move to that point if they got on board the ship. So the last guy in was the chief. He would take the power off the ship as he went down into the safe zone and you lock yourself in there. We've got food in there, we've got water in there and we've got a satellite phone. <clears throat> so satellite phone is so you can communicate. We then brought in with the oil companies, um, uh, these were security layers on officers. They were mainly South Africans because you couldn't trust the local military Nigerian Navy or, or um, the Mopoles Mobile Police. Uh, they just weren't trained up and they didn't have very good weapons. So we would provide money or the oil companies would provide money. I sat on a committee that worked to develop all this stuff. And then we, um, <clears throat> we had uh, helicopters come in with uh, expatriate pilots on them and they were fitted with weapons as well. So they would be patrolling when you get in there, you call up Mayday, you give your coordinates, helicopter comes across, 
helicopter maintains contact. So the guys are on board and they're trying to get into the accommodation. <clears throat> you, then you call, call up and you say, we're all locked down. So the helicopter knows that anybody he sees on the deck, whatever, is a bad guy. And then they'll come in and they'll just shoot. Uh, because the language over there is, there's none of this negotiation. It's send a message, a very strong message from the oil industry. If you want to try and take us on, you'll get killed. So they go and look for a softer target. So that's what we did. So move on to the next. And that, those two ships are in. The other thing we did was we developed a convoy system. So coming up the river, we went out in a convoy with all the ships. And then we had a number of um, small patrol boats with Nigerian Navy uh, patrolling or escorting these vessels in and out on the convoy. That's a convoy coming up into the, the port there. The next one. Okay, this is another vessel. This is in, uh, in Nigeria alongside and that's the Lotus Tide. Uh, now that's a smaller vessel. These were um, these are fast crew supply vessels. They carry about 20 passengers and light freight. Uh, this vessel was actually, uh, <coughs> I'll tell the story because it's, it's what happened. I caught the captain, Robbie, uh, and his mates selling fuel, uh, which was quite common, unfortunately, this part of the world. The captain was Portuguese. And um, what happened there was they got into this business of selling fuel to Nigerians in that area. <laughs> and then when it came to pay, to get paid for the fuel, uh, the Nigerians kidnapped the crew. So they didn't have to pay them for the fuel and they took the ship as well. So that was how that ship, that's what caused that incident. Um, we went through our process, we located where they were. Um, my boss in the state said, we'll never get the ship out, it's up in the swamp. And I said, leave it to me, we'll get it. We got the officers out first. We then got the crew out. Um, the crew were given to us, we didn't pay them any. But interesting thing with the Nigerian crew when I got them back, was they put their expenses in. They claimed that they had actually paid money to be released, <laughs> which wasn't the case. Um, I immediately terminated the two officers the two, uh, one was um, Portuguese and the other one was Ukrainian. Inside the vessel, uh, in the accommodation going down, there was a number of bullet holes when we got the ship back. So, you know, nobody was killed on the ship. And I found the story out later because later on, I, <coughs> I was working in Saudi Arabia and I came across the cat, the chief engineer. Chief engineer was a Ukrainian, but he had worked uh, in, um, I guess it was when when it was part of Russia, of course, he was in the in the Russian army and was fighting in Afghanistan and he was an armorer. So he told me the story that uh, <clears throat> these guys on the ship, they had uh, very old AK-47s, but in poor condition. And the chief engineer said to the one of the guys, I can fix your gun. Yeah, so they take the gun away, he fixes it and makes it all work, but it had a very, I guess the firing pin was very uh, sticky, but he fixed it all so it worked perfectly. So the Nigerian got the gun back and of course immediately triggered and it let a whole clip go into the accommodation of the vessel. 
the other interesting thing, I, I then met later on in Brazil, uh, another time I'm in a bar there and of course, tap on the shoulder, it's the Portuguese captain, he's working for another company. Now they were very appreciative. I, when I let them go, I said, look, I can't continue on because there's uh, some history here and we left it at that. Um, I found out that the cap, the, the, they, he, he had money on the ship that was secreted. Now we, the ship had been stripped, but there was enough of the ship there to repair it. So I towed it down to Namibia and we got it all fixed up and back to work. And I said to the superintendent that I sent down this, so don't tell anybody, but somewhere on that ship there's money. <laughs> we never did find it, so it's probably still there today. So let's move on to the next one. Uh, that's the solar tide too. Now that water uh, side, now we'll move on. Okay, that's just to get a, a feel. Um, these the, the Nigerians like to dress themselves up, so they scared everybody, and they. Um, <clears throat> We determined where were they getting the weapons? Well, what was happening was that um, there's about uh, 300,000 barrels of oil a day that is actually stolen in Nigeria. And uh, you've got the oil, the locals working for the oil companies involved. Uh, ships would come in and they would actually hook up to a pipeline and steal, the, it's, a, it's a sweet crude, very light. And they would take in return for that they would bring weapons down so the weapons were coming in from eastern europe the oil was going back up to eastern europe and it was a nice little business till they decided then we'll get more involved with uh, with kidnapping to make a bit of extra money i sat in on a meeting down there and said look up in angola we had this problem what we did there was that um, <clears throat> we sent the early this was way back in the early days we sent the first drones we got from the state. So we'd send a drone out each morning, go around the jungle to determine if there was nobody in that area before <clears throat> we would send the helicopters out to go offshore. Um, in Nigeria, when I put this idea forward, all hell broke loose. And I then found out that the Nigerian naval guys that were on the table we're all getting backhanders for allow. He said, "Look, if you send a drone up, you'll see about twenty tankers loading, <laughs> which is yeah, stealing from the country." So we'll move on to the next one. Oh, that's it. Okay. Well, well, that that was to give you a bit of a sort of colourful background to. Um, I put on, uh, there's a press release here, uh, which most of you would have got, and that just tells you the four people, um, the nationalities, um, and uh, we had an American, we had um, a Honduran, we had a Bulgarian, and then we had an English guy who worked for the security company. And he was uh, <clears throat> working for Shell, he was an ex-paratrooper. Yeah. And what was the problem? Well, the American was five million. Uh, if I recall, the Brit was four. And then um, Eastern Europeans and Filipinos were down around one million down. I had a price in Cameroon. Uh, I was working on another situation later. And then I got called. We work with this uh, internal security police of these countries. So when, because the oil is the only thing that really got, 
So when we had a problem, um, the government provides me with a security guy who is a national, and he called me up one day, he said, Reg, um, they found out who you are and they've got a price on your head. You better report that to your embassy. So I contacted the uh, Australian embassy or the attaché there, and he said, well, first of all, you shouldn't be here. So, well, what advice can you give me? He said, get out. So that was the help I got from the Australian government. So that was the end of that. Um, I'll just briefly walk you through how I dealt with that incident so that you have a bit of a feel. Um, to give you a background to what was going on uh, down there in the Niger Delta, you've got, I guess, three or four main tribal groups, the Amani and the Ijors were the two big ones. Um, and then you've got the foreign oil companies working there. Um, the criminal groups linked to political factions was probably the best way of identifying it because they're all kind of corrupted in together. And they come up with the idea of kidnapping for compensation. Let's do that and we'll make money. Uh, corruption was pande pandemic in there. And uh, as I said, 95% of the revenue was oil and it all, it all comes from the south, but it all disappears up north or into bank accounts in, in Europe. Uh, and that was part of the conflict of the Biafran war, which was never really resolved at the end of the day. So we had an armed group board the ship, as you saw, the Liberty Service, and we were in the region called Bielsa, which is down in the Delta. Um, and that was in January of 2006. They took um, six people off, took them by canoes up into the Delta region swampland, which is just, it was probably only, I suppose, five kilometres, six kilometres offshore. We worked for Shell, which is Shell Nigeria Exploration Production, and I'd never had that situation or had no training in that at all. So when I called up our office in the States and said, I've got a problem, they said, what are you going to do about it? Uh, so the first thing I had to do was to contact the embassies of all of the, the people that had been kidnapped, <clears throat> contact the families and tell them that, you know, unfortunately your son or your brother or your husband's been kidnapped, but we'll get him out, trust me. And um, then one of the, our insurance lawyers called me back and said, we've got a policy with a company in London called Control Risks. They provide hostage negotiation. You're covered for that. Give them a call. Here's a number. So I called this guy up in London and he said, look, yeah, we can provide that, um, but um, we can't negotiate. Um, we can assist you. We'll give you guidance, but we can't negotiate. So that's fine. That's where we go. So the first one I pretty much did um, on my own. With the other, there were six. Uh, the others, I was able to get a guy to come down from London to where I was, and he advised, helped me to work my way through it all. But it's pretty tough and pretty stressful, as you can understand, because they're saying, um, "Give us money, or we'll kill you." Um, so the major contributing factors I had there were people's lives were at risk. The kidnappers were demanding money or we'll, uh, kill them one by one, or we'll take an arm off or something like that. Now, you know they're not going to do it, but you're never quite sure they won't, they won't because life is very cheap 
Um, so I started the process that said contacted the head office, contacted victims, contacted all the embassies, um, determined proof of life. So you wait for them to call you because you, you don't know who they are. And you've got to be careful that you don't get caught by somebody who claims that they've got them, but they really haven't got them. So you have the thing called proof of life. So once you make contact, you try and find out by asking certain questions, which only your people will know, your family, uh, <clears throat> something to do with the ship. And once you determine, yep, they've got them, uh, then you start negotiating. Now, we couldn't pay any money. And the first thing I did was to make sure that I didn't negotiate direct because as a white man dealing with the Nigerian, the price is there. So to get the price down to that level, <clears throat> I would have my one of my Nigerian ops guys sitting opposite me, and we would be on a communication speaker. I could hear everything that was going on, and I would pass notes to him, and then he would talk to them. He could say things like, I can't pay that, the white man won't pay that. We can start at this price. So you're trying to get the number down, and you're buying time all the time. Uh, next thing you do is, uh, as I mentioned to you, is um, determine where they're being held, and then we contact the tribes in the area and offer them incentives to put pressure on to release them. Uh, time is another element, because the longer they're held there, the more desperate they are to get rid of them. They didn't kidnap them to hold them. So it, it's, a, it's a, I guess, a stressful time for everybody, but it, it takes time. So eventually you work them down to a point where I could get approval from our finance guy in the States as to what I to determine expenses. So, so I've got so many guys being held so much a day and we could come up with a number that everybody accepted wasn't a ransom, but it was expenses for holding our people in the jungle. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but that's, that's the way it works. Yeah. What we're seeing on the screen here, it's communications yep. back to America, which is coming from. I would do a brief every day to the embassy and in Abuja in the capital, right? Yeah. So I'd call them up each morning and I would give them a report. So here is there, senior Thai water vice president, but me, yeah. leaders that would not return it, you know, <coughs> given the employer said the company is. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And, but WikiLeaks. Got they get there. Yeah, they get hundreds of these, and they just release them out oh, okay. to so, everybody. Yes, so but this, this is confidential, information. classified information that's yeah. going back to Washington, and it's just 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 to show you what they were. And it was pretty. It wasn't very nice what they were doing. No, but this this didn't help anybody. Yes, having all this kind of stuff go so on. This is a record of your yeah. time. Yeah. A daily each day, one of those reports would go back. Yeah. And did, did it get leaked in real time or was it being leaked later after you? I picked that up later. I mean, at the time, the last thing I was worried about was what Julian Assange was doing with, uh, <laughs> with me in Africa. But um, that's in just. In terms of compromising the process while you were negotiating? Not really. Uh, no, no, not at all. I mean, the kidnap, kidnappers only want money. Yes. And um, they're just looking as much as many me. I'll give you an example. One day, when we're negotiating <clears throat> and, they, and they said you know if you don't pay this figure we're going to shoot him 
and they got the captain. And then I hear this scream and a bang. And so I knew that I was pretty certain they, were, that they hadn't shot him. And when I got the captain back later, I said, what happened there? He said, well, they were holding my arm up the back and, <laughs> and I'm screaming. You know, because in the swamp, if they shot him, he'd probably be dead within a day or two because uh, the conditions down there were pretty, when I got him back, they weren't, uh, um, the captain, you know, he was um, a typical, what we call Kunas from the south. And, um, you know, he, uh, he had high blood pressure, he had cholesterol, you name it, he had it. We couldn't get any medication in. I tried a couple of times to get it in, but it, it, it never got there. Uh, they would have, the Nigerians would have then grabbed it and sold it off somewhere else. But he came back um, skinny and not bad condition. But, uh, <laughs> and, and what was interesting also is that the, um, I guess it was, um, I don't know who it would have been in the state, which security department, but they actually had the phone at his house bugged. So when I was talking to the wife and explaining what was happening, they were hearing it as well. That's just the sort of stuff that goes on. Does that answer your question there? Anyway, we, um, we got a, so we eventually, I think it took about, 10 or 12 attempts because, um, so we got them down to a figure that was acceptable. You've then got to work out how do you um, get this money across to them. And it's not like I'll give you a guy and you give me so much money, it's uh, who goes first. And uh, they're not going to give you the people until they get the money. So we're down in, in um, Port Harcourt, and there's a river there. Now by this stage, um, this kidnapping and, and civil unrest got really out of control and they've got a curfew on, <coughs> there's armed patrols everywhere. I've got, um, when you're in this part of the world, um, the water, the food, everything is um, not so good. So I would regularly get ill uh, and you know, it's like a food poisoning and so bad diarrhea, so I'm on the back. <laughs> and uh, so we've got to a point where we're ready to go. I've got the, the money's in local currency and it's Naira. So we've got a big bag of, looks a lot, but it's not that much, but I, I won't tell you what the number was. But, um, and they're on one side of the river and I'm on the other. <clears throat> and so um, I know that uh, they're not going to release them. I've got to send the money over and hope that they'll send them back. So first thing you come back with, they start with, um, Oh, our phones aren't working. You have, you have to top the phones up so you know that you're getting close. <laughs> and then they say, well, look, uh, they've got no real clothes. Can you send some clothes over? So you send, and you know that none of these things end up with them because they don't. And it's just that the guys that are holding them hostage are not the ones that are getting the money. It goes to the, the leaders. So these guys, the, the, the kids, and they were mostly 15, 18 years old, and they're on, uh, they, they chew this um, weed over there. Oh, it's like a narcotic. Yeah, uh, no, it's, it's not betel nut. It's, it's, uh, it's some sort of narcotic plant, and, and they're spaced out on that all the time. So um, anyway, over goes the money. <laughs> and um, I'm saying, you know, through my uh, Nigerian ops guy, look, uh, 
are they frightened about the the, the curfew because there were uh, Nigerian naval patrol boats up and down the river and we're at midnight trying to do this <clears throat> he said they're not frightened about the Nigerian Navy they'll they'll kill them you know because the, the the kidnappers had better weapons they had you know more of them uh, and they're not frightened and when when they attacked they, they will immediately grab the first one and it was always a guy with a sword and his job was to cut a head off and it was to sort of send the message to the rest of the military guys surrender or you'll end up like that guy over there <clears throat> so anyway we we work it out i send the money my guys come across the river i got them <clears throat> then we've got to get to the airport and get up to lagos because i want to get them out of the country as quickly as possible uh, <clears throat> and that's difficult so i take them to our base camp which is in a security compound give them all a phone call your family let them hear that we've got you, you're on your way out. <clears throat> um, there were two roadblocks and I just, I said, just drive straight through. So I've got two vehicles, vehicle number one goes through and I follow him. And the Nigerians didn't chase us. So this, this was a, a police patrol because I knew if they stopped us, we didn't have to negotiate and all that kind of stuff. So we get up there <clears throat> and then I had uh, people standing by to fly them out of the country. So that's pretty much um, the first incident. How am, I, how am I doing for time? Uh, we're just about there, Rich. Okay, well, we could go all night, but I won't. <laughs> no. Oops, sorry. You got any well, questions? Maybe we can have some questions and answers because after listening to you, I'm sure there's lots of questions and answers. I'm actually recruiting for a job in Nigeria. <laughs> Not too many hands up there, eh? Wow. When did this happen, Red? What was the period? When that occurred? Uh, yeah, it's right here. It's uh, That was 2006 for the first one. And in the space of um, three years, I had six. Oh. Yeah, did you get all the people out? Got them all out, yeah. In fact, um, I should say that the uh, control risks in London, after I did the first one, I had the insurance companies pull our insurance. So um, the underwriters in London, where most of our insurance was broken, uh, said it's too dangerous, we can't work in Nigeria. So um, our insurance lawyer called me up and said, when you come back from Nigeria, could you drop into London? We're going to go and see the underwriters. So I fly, I've been down there for two months at that stage so I fly into London and uh, <clears throat> we had a lunch put on for all this room full of Tommy Bean counter types sitting there and um, I then had to show them what because we then started um, a uh, I guess a program of how to minimize risk in Nigeria because the Niger the oil companies said just send the ships out again I said no we're not going out so I got with the other vessel owners and said, we're not going until we get better security. So uh, as Robbie said, we, we developed a number of best practices. Their view was, uh, it doesn't matter, the crew get killed, we'll just wash the decks down, we'll get another crew and you go out again next day. Now that, that's life. Uh, I'll give you another example. Um, when I was negotiating 
uh, down <coughs> on another kidnapping. I'm sitting there because I'm getting to know everybody. So the head of the secret police and me are good mates. And he said, oh, Reg, you said, um, we know, we like you because we know we'll get it sorted out in it. He said, unlike those Chinese. And I said, what do you mean Chinese? He said, well, just up further up here, he said, the Chinese are putting a new road in and a bridge. <clears throat> a whole bunch of their workers got kidnapped. So they called us up. We got involved. We called up the embassy, Chinese embassy, and said um, a number of your citizens have been kidnapped and being held for ransom. The ambassador or the guy there says, keep them, we've got plenty more in China. <laughs> so they just shot them. And that's a true story. Life's cheap. Yeah. So any questions? Is that the same thing What's that? No, the actually, uh, on the first kidnapping, we tracked down, because being an American company, I could get access to the CIA in country, and their, uh, the oil company has um, security liaison office. They pay hundreds and hundreds of Nigerian tribes to not attack them. So we got a lot of information coming in all the time. And we were able to, um, and I've got a British citizen, so I've got the British government security guy helping me. And we tracked down some of the phone signals that were actually um, one of the leaders of the men group was in Cape Town. So they were getting their orders from Cape Town. It was another, it turned out he was a Nigerian, but he was based in Cape Town and he was instructing the, so the, the kidnappers are just, uh, they're just the spear throwers, they're the hired hands. The people behind the throne in this case were corrupt politicians and corrupt businessmen. Out for money. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no. Um, we developed a very good um, security system uh, where the vessels went by convoy. Um, oil is needed because they've got nothing else there. So without oil, there's no money. Without the money, they can't, the politicians can't, you know, get it for their own ill-gotten gains, plus all the, the wealthy individuals that control the country. So um, what's changed is that we've got much tighter security. We obviously had to pay uh, our crews a lot more money in order for them to, um, to go and do this. And um, the Nigerians were busy pushing for localization. So um, a number of Nigerian companies then started out operating these vessels. They didn't do a very good job, uh, but um, whether you've got Nigerians on the ship, nobody wants to kidnap them. So uh, in answer to your question, yes, it, it is happening, not on the scale that it was when it, this first started. And it's not just Nigeria, we had it in Cameroon, I had it up in the Congo, so it's kind of all over the place. Any other questions? Does nobody follow the money trail? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, 
it wasn't into Swiss bank accounts. I mean, you know, by the time we negotiated it down, it was in, it was all in local currency, and um, it went in. in uh, I took pictures of the suitcases in order to show. Um, and in fact, the interesting story there was that the um, because I worked for an American company, our chief bean counter in the states had to be reg because uh, I I was paying at one stage the trip the security triple S to go out and do some reconnaissance to determine you know the area and all that and of course they say we'd love to help you Reg but the canoe's got no engine you need an engine so so I got to buy an engine and oh we've got no fuel we'll have to put some fuel in um, I got told can you get a receipt for all that stuff that you're given these bloody Nigerian triple S guys so I stupidly said. Oh, by the way, can I get a receipt? Well, all hell broke loose. And um, after that, I was not a very nice person, but how dare you insult us by asking for an invoice? So, no, um, the money disappears. Any other questions? Thanks very much for your time. No, hang on, there's one more here. Unlike Robbie, there's, there's, there's no block coming out. Well, can you come back up on stage for a moment, too, please? We all, I'm sure, appreciate the time and effort you both put into making this evening possible for us. It's been very interesting, great fun. And I'd like to give you both a small token, oh, very heavy one, about appreciation uh, for putting the time into the scene. Now, that's the right colour, too. It is the right colour. Rich and Rob, Rob and some of the other people from Oscar. We'll be still here at the museum uh, up until the 14th of July. So their exhibition is still on the go. And I'm sure they would love some of you to come in, have a chat, and have a look at the exhibition and find out a few more of which will tell us true. Thank you both very much. I'm sure, like me, you've all appreciated this evening. I'd like to also oops, uh, thank our Zoom audience for coming on board. Um, for Ian, who has been our IT witness tonight. A uh, big thank you to Secretary Carolyn for your amazing effort over the last few weeks and our dedicated volunteers who have given their time to support the museum once again. Tonight has been one to remember. Thank you all for coming, and I wish you all safe passage. Thank you, and good night.